Welcome to AI Studios, a new podcast about the explosion of generative AI. We're holding a series of conversations about the latest in the field with some of the brightest creators, builders, researchers, and thinkers. My name is Natalia Barina. The following is a conversation with Barack Turovsky, Executive in Residence, Scale Venture Partners, former head of product Google Languages AI, and CPO of Trax. Good morning. Uh, it's a beautiful day here in the Bay Area. Today, we are privileged to have with us Barack Turovsky. Barack has had a long and storied career uh, working on AI products. Barack is currently an executive in residence at Scale Venture Partners. He was previously a CPO at Trax and spent a long time at Google building AI products, leading languages, Google Translate, um, all sorts of cutting edge artificial intelligence, machine learning, delivering magical experiences across Google Search, Assistant, Cloud, Chrome, just too numerous to, to, to say. So welcome, Brock. So good to have you. How are you? I'm doing well, Natalia, and thanks for having me. Well, I think this is going to be an amazing conversation. It's just such an honor to have somebody with your wealth of experience in the field. Um, so yeah, let's start it off by talking a little bit through about the AI hype. AI has just, it's always been so big and popular, but <laughs> it's never, never quite experienced the sort of interest we're seeing today. Um, what are some of the things that, that have been, that have caught your eye most recently? Yeah. So first of all, I think I consider myself to be incredibly lucky that I was kind of on a at the center of two big breakthroughs, all this kind of watershed moments on AI. The first one happened in 2016 when Google released the first product. Coincidentally, it was Google Translate where I led the product team. That was the first product that used deep neural network at scale. And that basically showed uh, the way that both hardware-wise and software-wise, our ability to use deep neural networks on a large uh, large uh, training corpus that to some extent contribute to all this AI revolution. As a side note, if people are interested, there is an excellent article from New York Times called The Great AI Awakening that I recommend everyone to read about the history of AI and this breakthrough. And, you know, there was that opened up a lot of innovation, but a lot of this innovation was initially focused mostly on big tech companies that were able to use it at scale and also, you know, demo, democratize it through cloud applications. Google use it at Google Search and on Google Ads and Google Translate and other companies like Amazon and others used it. But it was initially mostly focused on A, big tech and also academic community because a lot of the articles like transformer articles that Google published in 2017, there are basically this baseline for next big explosion of uh, innovation in AI space. Now we're getting into the next phase where OpenAI to some extent popularized by using, taking a lot of the existing technology, building it, but building a very nice interface around it that I think even they were surprised about the adoption. But now we are basically seeing that a lot of people, a lot of companies, a lot of entrepreneurs starting to use it in very creative ways which is awesome because to some extent, the beauty of large language models that 
it can create a next wave of creations across multiple use cases. So, and I was involved in both those use cases, and I feel myself very lucky to be part of those two watershed moments. So how much do you think is hype versus how much is going to be of this is real? Yes. Well, as you can imagine, in every cycle you have the use case, in my opinion, is not hype. Uh, we do be, I do believe that we are now in a situation where a lot of the innovation will, will pretty rapidly progress using large language models and generative AI. It might actually be in use cases that are a bit there is probably currently a bit of an overhype on the search use case because it's very, you know, very shiny and newsworthy to talk about the rivalry between OpenAI and Microsoft and Google. I believe, and we'll talk about it based on my framework, that the use case that are where LLMs really shine is the creative part of it, where they much better what I call fluency, very polished delivery, very polished creation of images, documents, emails, uh, etc. But there will be a ton of use cases. Those use cases are much more democratized because, I mean, there are very few companies that can compete in search. There is a ton of companies that could compete on creating better sales quotes drafts, better documents, better PowerPoints, etc. So I do yeah. believe that the use case is real, obviously, in this ecosystem of 300 plus and counting companies. As in everything, there'll be companies that will be very successful, be companies will be less successful, and there'll be companies that will be not very successful. So that's kind yeah, of a classical uh, <laughs> adoption cycle. Yeah. I, one of the things you wrote uh, was a piece called Framework for Evaluating Generative AI Use Cases, which I thought was an incredibly valuable way to frame our thinking about generative AI and what we're seeing come onto the market. And so I think a lot of people don't have a very good sense of how to think about this technology and where to apply it. I would love to get a little bit deeper into that framework that you created, because I think it's an invaluable tool for business people, for, for product managers to take that and to apply it to the technology. So let's, let's get into that. What are the, yeah. what are the use cases? What are the kind of the high stakes use cases? What are the low stakes use cases? Maybe let's start there. Yeah, sounds good. I think one of the biggest, to some extent, misconceptions in, uh, why people are so excited about ChatGPT is what I call fluency, meaning suddenly machine can pro produce responses that are extremely well written, extremely well said and very polished and also very confident. That's a huge uh, technological achievement. We can talk about how it was achieved. It's like a process that happened in Transformers in 2019 and Google published multiple multilingual models. One of them was on translation. Some of them was on um, uh, dialogues like uh, Lambda and now ChatGBT, but it basically shows that when you train the model on a lot of dialogue data and huge amount of data, humongous amount of that data, suddenly machine can talk very fluently and smoothly on a wide variety of topics. But one thing people tend to forget is that high fluency doesn't automatically mean high accuracy. I mean, we can see it with human behavior too, including people who are like con artists, who are extremely fluent and they're very smooth and charismatic, but they're not accurate, right? So it's important when you look at the use case to basically look at the use case and say, how does it rank in terms of the need for high fluency versus high accuracy? And let's take a couple of extreme examples. So for example, on the left, on the low accuracy angle, you have 
composing music or writing a children's book or writing a greeting or writing a poem. What you really, really need is a good story. So you really need high fluency. Accuracy could be pretty low because in many cases, in the use case, for example, writing a science fiction book, it's probably made up story anyway, or there is not a right or wrong answer. It's not a factual answer. Therefore, in those use cases, you really need high fluency. If you get to the top uh, bottom right corner, if you make an query, let's say in Google search, and you need supporting data for, for important business or personal decisions, meaning decisions that involve money or time or both, you really need high accuracy. Yes, you might need some fluency. For example, if you need a recommendation for travel or book travel, or if you need to purchase some kind of appliances or insurance, you need some explanation. So it's not that fluency is not important, but at the end of the day, the most important thing is that you will be highly accurate because people will make a decision that involves money or time or both based on your recommendations. Therefore, they need to be very accurate. And the last thing that is represented by colors is how low or high stake the use case is, meaning what is the risks if the accuracy is, if, if the answer is incorrect, meaning it's a very well written answer, but it's incorrect answer. And when you look at the applicability of generative AI technology, you need obviously to look at that as a technology product. You need to look at that as a huge scale, meaning you now need to write uh, a million of music, so millions of children's books. So you need to do billions of search queries. And here you start seeing very interesting trends. So again, let's take an example that's a bit more practical. Let's say you want to write some kind of a review or a greeting or something. I mean, it's not that accuracy is not important at all. It is important, but the beauty of it is that even at scale, the users will probably not just immediately post to send an email. They will probably want to double check it and they will ask ChatGPT or Generative AI to create a draft and then they will double check it. And the division of work between large language models or machine and human would be machine will be responsible for fluent writing, which is takes tends to take a lot of time. A lot of people are actually pretty good with fact, but they are not good in creating good, eloquent story. That's where it takes a lot of time, and that could create a huge productivity gain for people. And then humans will just double-check for accuracy. They will double-check if all the facts are correct and adjust the facts if needed and obviously make the system better. And therefore, it's a very nice way to look at things because that's where large language models are strongest. They're strongest in creating well, very well-written content. Let's talk at the example back to supporting data for business decisions. If you're talking about a search use case, you cannot, it's physically impossible to put a person behind every query. And if you ask users to do it, it's not that different than the current version of search. So there is a lot of those kind of dynamics and therefore, when I go to next slide, I basically observed a very interesting trend that if you look at the area that is marked in uh, blue, it's what I call creator workplace productivity use cases, meaning they're focused on improving creator or office, or what, let's call it white collar workers productivity. You look at a lot of use cases like writing business memos and emails, creating business presentations that still have a need for higher accuracy, but also a lot of use cases that you might not need higher accuracy because there is no like a right or wrong answer writing a science fiction book, writing a children's book. Those use cases are very good fit for large language models because A, it's a significant productivity gain for people. 
in those professions, they always can double check the accuracy. If accuracy is incorrect, they will double check it, but they will still realize pretty significant productivity gain versus use cases that are called them information slash decision support use cases, where you basically make an query, let's say to a search engine or some other knowledge base to get an accurate answers and maybe an explanation that those use cases are a bit more tricky for LLMs because of the need for high accuracy. And in my prediction, it will take longer time, both for users to adopt it and for enterprise to adopt it. Therefore, the use cases of improving creator slash workplace productivity, in my opinion, those also will be the, the most disruptive use cases in um, short to medium term. I love that. I love that. And I there's something I, I wanted to share that I heard today. Um, in that particular creator quadrant, um, hallucination is actually a feature and a good feature. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> because you you get inspiration. It's yeah. okay from, but it's okay to not have perfect accuracy. Absolutely. Um, In many cases, you don't need perfect accuracy. You don't need even very high accuracy because there is no right or wrong answer in many creative professions or in many creative creations, so to speak. Yeah. So one other, these visuals are just so invaluable and, and so helpful. And I think they'll, they'll be especially useful for our product management colleagues uh, as they try, start to incorporate this technology. The other point I wanted to touch on, there's a lot of talk about foundational versus fine-tuned models. Mm -hmm. What are the reasons to use one versus the other? Um, and should we even think about it, you know, in that either or framing? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So first of all, I believe it's a usually additive framing because to develop your own foundational model, there are sometimes needs for that, but most of the time it's very expensive and requires a lot of expertise. My feeling it will probably be additive, meaning you might need to use foundational model and potentially fine-tuned model. But I think it's very important to, to define the need because in some cases you might not need a, a fine-tuned model. Again, I'm using an example that might be a bit judgmental, but my feeling is that a lot of the business that Jasper AI or other co copy AI are doing might be disrupted because in many cases, let's say ChatGPT4, foundational model might be as good than fine-tuned model. So it's very important to understand the needs and kind of there are three main reasons, I believe, why would you might need fine-tuned models. The first one, the use case actually requires higher accuracy, right? And you actually want to use fine-tuned model to improve accuracy for the use case. Again, most obvious example, ChatGPT4 looks like prioritized passing standardized tests as a, let's say, legal test, right? And they were basically in lower percentile initially with ChatGPT 3.5, and now they're in the higher percentile, right? So you, they basically decide if you want to prioritize those use cases. The second reason could be domain adaptation slash personalization. You want to personalize the lingo or voice and tone of your responses to a specific domain, maybe legal. That's another reason that you might want to do fine tuning. And that finally, I think uh, cost could be an interesting angle, o obviously depends on the use case. But currently, there is a lot of attention of creating bigger and bigger models, more parameters, deeper networks, more training corpus. But that becomes expensive, especially for hyperscale use cases, search or others. I actually think there is an advantage on potentially thinking the other way around and finding and reducing the models. A uh, couple of examples, Google Translate, when we launched first large lang uh, language models in 2016, 
our inference or like our serving uh, performance was 100x slower than uh, our production system. So we actually need to A, develop customized hardware. That's why Google developed TPUs. But we also played with the model with a process called distillation where we artificially reduce the model and we try to look what is the what is the basically the ratio between accuracy or quality of translation versus size of the model? And sometimes, depends on the use case, you might be able to sacrifice, I'm making up a number, you might sacrifice three to four or five percent in quality for much faster performance time or faster cost. Another example is what Llama recently did. Llama is a Facebook model that deserves credit. They actually Basically, again, it's, it's a publication. It's still need to see how it will work in production. But they're claiming that they reduced the size of the model and achieved comparable results. That's a very interesting angle. And what you could also do is you basically reduce size of the model. Let's say you reduce the model by 30%, which could be pretty linear reduction in cost or performance or like latency. But maybe your, uh, your model quality or factuality or accuracy got reduced by 5%, but now you use high quality fine-tuned data and fine-tuning the model to basically effectively get back this lost accuracy. So those are, in my opinion, the three dimensions, and maybe there are more dimensions to try to understand where foundational model might be good enough and where you actually need some kind of fine-tuned models. Yeah, one of the things we I remember we had talked about even at Meta as a trend even a couple of years back was... There's, there's sort of two sides of it. One is very, very large models or going the other way and making them very, very small. Yes. Um, so that's what I thought when you were going through some of the costs. It doesn't have to be very, very small. It depends. Very, very small might be a good, fit, good angle for edge computing or on device. It could be, you know, as I said, the all, first of all, large language models, it's a deceiving name. Those are humongous language models, right? You're talking about, in many cases, hundreds of billions of parameters and hundreds of billions or even trillions in training corp. So those are humongous. Even reducing them by a factor of 10 or 5 or by 30% might give you significant cost reduction and significant performance latency improvements. And sometimes it's a very good trade-off. Again, don't forget the framework of like what's important. If high accuracy is important, if super high fluency is important, you might need to go to bigger models. But in many cases, you could, for example, you're restricted to a domain, right? You don't need to have high fluency on every topic in the world. You want to focus on a specific topic. You could definitely probably focus on redu- reducing the model. Yeah, and this is a good segue into another uh, point that we should touch on, which is limitations. So we already talked a little bit uh, about the hallucination aspect and yep. how that might not make it the right fit for um, for some of the decision-making use cases. We touched a little bit on the cost. What are some other things that people should should think about and consider uh, when they think about generative AI and large language models in terms of limitations? Yeah, so I think in my opinion, the limitation of hallucinations are the biggest one. Hallucination could happen mostly on what I call factuality. And also remember that factuality has two aspects. It could be there is something in training data that was either a noise or something that caused it. There is also a freshness component that is important for some use cases. Again, let's look at search. A lot of search queries are driven by recent events and LLMs, I mean, OpenAI made a conscious decision to even not go there because it's not only 
requires pretty significant increase back to cost because you need to retrain the model even if it's uh, incremental retraining faster, uh, right, uh, more frequent. So you're basically creating a very different system because, as I said, the strength of LLMs is much more on creativity and fluency side, much less on the factuality side. That doesn't mean it's 50% accurate. It could be 90% accurate, but you might need 99% accuracy for a use case. <laughs> so I, I would say that, like, in the classical economic professor responses, limitations are very much dependent it kind of depends on the use case. In some cases, it's not a limitation. You gave an extreme example of in creator space, it's a feature, right? It's, it might be actually an advantage, not a disadvantage. That's why those use cases are much more applicable. In some use cases, there's high factuality and high accuracy is important. Is important. Remember, it also could be offensive, right? So like, and if a brand is on the line, regulation uh, regulation is basically very carefully watching for good reasons, all the space. And if now it reinforces unfair biases, that's a challenge beyond just accuracy. All those things could happen in uh, those models. Yeah, one of the things um, I, I have some some colleagues who are also AI product managers. We also we always talk about how every product manager is eventually going to be an AI product manager. And I think this framework to think about the use cases and figuring out what is that threshold of accuracy that is the right threshold for your use case and your product is something that everyone is going to have to, <laughs> have to contend, contend with um, and, and figure out. And it's it's an art, isn't it? It's, a, it's an art. I mean, even the art is like, how do you even measure it? A lot of those are kind of new domains. How do you even measure accuracy? Accuracy and factuality is a very tough one to measure. There are multiple ways to look at it. Absolutely. Yeah, but I think that's where the magic happens when you Absolutely. match yes. you match the, the accuracy with the user expectations. And again, there's such a wide range. Absolutely. Depending on how much you need to have, um, like what level of accuracy you need to yep. have. Um, another really interesting area that uh, I think is a big open question is what is the business impact of this technology? Um, and what is that going to look like? How are companies going to make money off of generative AI with, with consumers? And <laughs> what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So as I said, back to my point that I think the first phase of uh of AI revolution that started with Google Translate and went to a lot of use cases. A lot of big tech companies actually integrated different aspects of AI into their products. For example, Google uses technology called BERT into much better understanding of queries, not necessarily generating responses, but it's very important to understand the queries of intent of a person in a use case like search. A lot of use cases, even, be, even before large models, we had all those assistive tools like uh, smart Compose, Smart Reply that used that was used both on Microsoft and Google. But now I think we'll democratize it much bigger. And I actually feel that if you look beyond the search use case, that A, I think it's obviously fascinating, but might take longer. Plus, because the paradigm shift even for consumers would be longer. Uh, if you look at any use case that is customer facing, being creating sales quotes and sales RFPs and creating much more intelligent chatbots, et cetera, we will see, in my opinion, a huge spark of new disruptive approaches. And if CEOs of companies 
I'm just making it up in transportation phase or in the utility space like Verizon or Comcast. If they think this generative AI's hype is only for Google and Microsoft, that's wrong. It's actually much more, that's much more applicable to those customer, customer interactions heavy industries because those, in my opinion, will be disrupted much faster simply because it will not only dramatically increase productivity of generating those responses, but in my humble opinion, will can even increase their customer experience in many cases. Because if you think about today, if you're calling a customer service uh, uh, and the whole goal of the customer service person who is sitting offshore is to understand your input and basically make a query to a knowledge base and give you a cookie cutter response, guess what? ChatGPT could do it potentially much better, both in terms of response times, but also to create much elaborate, rephrase the knowledge base in much more human language, much less professional lingo, but like plain human language. And also it will sound much more natural. I think there is much more potential there in the short to medium term. And that will impact almost every industry, you know, transportation, utilities, travel, healthcare, you name it. Every industry that has a significant customer interaction on the sales or service or support side will we'll see pretty significant disruption. Yeah, that's something I really look forward to cutting the time to wait on the phone. It's just a terrible experience even today. And it just happens so often with yep. so many different types of industries and businesses, whether it's healthcare or, you know, my cable bill. Um, so I can't I can't wait for it to come to to those sectors. Another one we touched on um, in, in one of our earlier conversations was around the amount of content that's that's generated. Um, yes. So I would love to just you know hear a little bit more about your thoughts there. I think this yes. one is potentially a little bit scary for people who create content. Yes. Or well, scary. Uh, no, depends how you look at that. If you look at the as a as a uh, overall as the big pictures, if you think about what, for example, Instagram created when they created filters or meme generators, all those tools. That's created a 10x increase in creations because now you're going beyond, I don't know, 0.2% of users of, let's say, Meta or TikTok that were proficient in Photoshop. Now you could, everybody who has some understanding of those tools can go and start creating, you know, some relatively simple content. And that's what created a lot of spark of creations. Now we can go to another 10x wave because there are still a lot of people that have some good ideas for creations, but they still lack time or inspiration or creativity to either communicate, you know, my wife and I went to Big Sur and my wife took a bunch of pictures. She really wanted to create like a real or a story that demonstrates the serenity and beauty of this place, but she spent half an hour, which is a lot, finding the right pictures. And then she wanted to add maybe some visual text and music and maybe even a song and maybe even a song could be in her own voice but that took too too much time because she didn't have it she was oh i don't like this picture and that picture but now we could really tell you know chat in plain human language take all my pictures in the albums adjust them if needed add visual elements add a add music that is appropriate to the mood that i want serenity maybe even create you know Let's call it a positive version of deep fake that the song will be, uh, will be, you know, my wife's voice will basically be part of the song. I mean, she's not a great singer, but now she could be. So I think there is a lot of great uh, potential 
um, applications that can help to create the next wave of creations for many more people than today. Yeah, I love that. Uh, it's, it's sort of democratizing creativity and giving us all the ability to be more creative, even if we, even if we don't have the, the drawing skills or the singing skills um, and so on. So I think this is really exciting. I've been playing around with with a bunch of tools. Um, yeah. Uh, so what about you know, we, it would be a remiss to 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 not take advantage of this opportunity to talk to you and hear. How do we build these systems? If you mm-hmm. are, let's say you're a product manager and who is looking to get into AI, how are these systems built? What, what are the kinds of things we should keep in mind if we want to build them or even if we want to use those, these, the, the, uh, these t- technology? <laughs> yes, I would say that like there are three main components and probably in each one of them there are subcomponents. So three main creators of value in AI is training data, uh, the models, let's call foundational model and compute. My prediction is that training data will slowly be commoditized unless it's in a very specific domain, let's say, you know, in general, uh, for foundational models, like, I don't know, healthcare, where you don't have data. And even that is a big if. I believe the models are to some extent commoditized today because you either have them open source or at least published to a large extent, there are some pullbacks, including from companies that say they'll be very open. So OpenAI now is saying they're not really open. But there is enough publications. There is a ton of companies. So I believe it's already being commoditized in terms of the foundational models. And finally, compute. I believe compute will be basically concentrated with three three to four cloud providers. So let's put that aside if you want to do it at scale or start building small and go uh, and go larger based on the use case that will probably be done through cloud providers. I do believe that the main uh, vector for for many businesses is A, to define their needs for fluency and accuracy and their high stakes, low stakes, and then basically decide, do on the model side and on the data side, our foundational model from, I don't know, ChatGPT4 as an example, is sufficient to get started or we actually need to fine tune them much more. Do we need to get access to additional data, what does additional data gives us? How do we measure that? Does it give us higher fluency or higher accuracy or maybe higher personalization for a, a, a particular person? In my opinion, it comes back to business slash product definition first, like what's acceptable for a use case to get, what is the 80% of the value creation? It might You might start with something that is available today through a cloud provider and then go from there, but in many cases, you actually need to add something, either fine-tuned data or models or both and go from there. For another thing that I think is very important to understand, especially for use cases of um, use cases related to customer service, it's not that we are getting to a new offshoring in, uh, approach that, oh, I had 100 people in the US, now I can have 130 people in India. You need a different type of skills. You might need less skills of current skills, but you might need a different skills and different tools. You might need a skill of somebody who will be responsible for data and data cleaning, et cetera. You might need tooling that will be much more responsible to help uh, customer service or salespeople to, to fact check, right? It doesn't have to be completely manual. You could potentially build a tool that will help you fact check things. So I think it requires, it's a very different paradigm, very different process as let me just reduce cost. It's much more than that, both on the value creation, because as I said, 
in addition productivity cost reduction i think it will be much better customer experience but you also to achieve that customer experience and clearly define you need to look at that with kind of ai expert minds mindset and saying what different skill sets i would need and how much of the skill sets and what type of tools i need to get to try to get to the right solution yeah and i think there are a couple of things um as you were talking that i wanted to double click on a little bit it feels to me um that the new technology and the new set of products that we are going to see coming up in the in the next few years could also mean that there are different new jobs, AI-specific jobs, right? So like you mentioned cleaning the data. So, so we've, we've had some of that, but it, it seems like it could also give birth to all these new types of jobs. Um, what, what else could we see that are like new AI-specific kinds of jobs uh, that, that yeah. are coming? Well, generally speaking, the good news is that when people are worried about displacement of jobs, it's, in my opinion, transition of jobs. There is a lot of data that shows that technological innovation creates a lot of new jobs. For example, there was a Golden Zack report that showed that vast, I think 60% of our current jobs didn't exist in 1940, right? And many of those jobs are huge employment drivers. So that's a good news. You obviously need to make sure you support people because it will be a different type of skill sets and transition will be hard. It's hard to predict right now because again, we're in a very early journey. For example, how will in the next five years, how the customer service or customer-focused uh, interactions will look like, where we will stop, and what does it mean in terms of processes and skill sets and people needed, right? Same thing, definitely applicable to things like search, etc. How we will consume information, how do we will create, how we make creation. So I think it's very early to say. I do believe that the, that the topic of uh, looking at all the infrastructures that is needed, yes, there will be a ton of that will be concentrated on a foundational side with cloud providers, but you still need the full end stack of like, how do you consume the data? How the data is actually fits into end-to-end -end processes that involves tooling, different tooling, different, different type of people, different skills. I think it's a fascinating topic that is very hard to predict. I do believe that anything related to data science and understanding the data, uh, Anything related to, you know, uh, folks, I mean, in every use case, you have a high stakes, for example, even in customer service, even if response is very nice, at the end of the day, sometimes you might need to make a decision, issue a refund, uh, charge a person, etc. That requires maybe different skill set of people that will be responsible for those, you know, edge cases or high stake cases that you need a different type of skill sets to do that, fact checking skill sets, etc. So I do believe it will be in time, there will be, depends on the, you know, uh, pace of innovation in the space and the basic tooling, the process will need to change and the skills will need to change. But I do believe that a lot of the jobs in uh, those fields uh, that today require different skills that might require much more understanding how, for example, AI engine works, their limitations and how to deal with them through tooling, skills, etc. Yeah, I think it's this is interesting. In my observation, we're already seeing some of these new jobs crop up, like prompt, yeah, prompt engineering. Engineer. Yeah, exactly. Interesting one. Absolutely. Do you think that one has? Well, in your opinion, do you think that one has lasting value? Is it going to stay around? Or is it a, a temporary job? Uh, we will see. Again, I do believe that it will. The moment you basically feed machine with an uh, with a natural language input, unlike let's say in search that is very specific. 
it obviously much easier for people to interact with machine, but it also creates much more ability for errors because quality of the prompt matters a lot, right? You could put, I always give that examples that like, let's say you were in a crime scene and police invites you to, uh, to, to describe the, the criminal, you're like a witness and you're like, well, I cannot draw. They're like, no worries, we will give you a police sketch artist or a robot and you will need to describe it. It sounds easy to describe in human language, but you have 15 types of eyebrows and 50 types of noses and 50 types of hair types, etc. It becomes very detailed description. I think we'll see two angles. One angle would be through maybe skills of people, which I think would be important. I also believe that we'll get better and better and exp- uh, 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 do it in through tooling that in many cases might hide a lot of this complexity, meaning it will be some kind of UI treatment. I want shorter versus uh, longer content. I want more descriptive versus less descriptive content. I want more visual versus more textual. There is a lot of things you could start doing through UI tooling, but I do believe that we'll have, remember behind all the toolings are people that building it. So I do believe that we will need more people focused on basically prompt creation, whether it will be automated to a large extent through some kind of a tooling, or also people, my feeling is that as everything in AI, it's people plus machines. It will just be different combinations. We still don't know yet where it will be. So human in the loop. <laughs> Always, yes. I mean, AI is enhancing skills, right? It's enhancer skills, allows us to focus on things, uh, on, on other things. I always like to quote what Steve Jobs was saying, that he basically looked at, you know, uh, different animals and how fast they run. And obviously, you know, uh, human is in like in the low percentile compared to, let's say, cheetah. But human on the bike or human with the car, right? It's, uh, he will definitely be cheetah. So at the end of the day, technology and AI as well is building tools to make people better on something. And I think it's true for, for, many, for many use cases, including generative AI use cases. Yeah. And another hot topic, um, I think, at least when you think about it from a business perspective or or an AI product management perspective, is what are the potential moats that we could have around this technology? Yeah. So back to my point is that, you know, uh, back to my point about the big value creators, models, uh, models, um, uh, training data and uh, and uh, compute, definitely compute is a huge mod. And uh, frankly, Andreessen also, uh, Andreessen Orovitz published their, uh, their kind of blog post about that. And they talked about right now, we see mods mostly on the compute resources providers. There'll probably be some mods on the generative on foundational models. But again, I think we currently have too many companies. We might see a consolidation there. And the next question would be, to what extent on the data side, uh, access to additional data will be super critical in some use cases versus not very critical on some use cases. We also need to remember that the modes, especially in startup communities, doesn't have to be pure AI. Modes could be, I really, really deeply understand the use case of, let's say, customer service, and I know how it fits into overall end-to-end solutions versus, you know, versus just providing piecemeal technologies that in many cases, you know, a cloud cloud provider could do. You could have a mode around enterprise relationship or access to a specific data, right? And being very an expert in cleaning this data and preparing it and using it for some kind of fine tuning uh, approach. 
So there are the modes doesn't have to be technological slash AI modes. It could be other modes, especially in enterprise or scale modes who is getting to scale fast on the consumer side. But I think it's a non-trivial question. Definitely compute will be a mode, but that's, you know, that's limited only to handful providers that are all, in my opinion, very well positioned. And the, the rest is kind of TBD right now, but please, please remember it's a very early days. As with every technology, it's hard to predict whether we'll have 100 companies or five or 20. I believe, I mean, I, I don't think they, this way will be that different than all the other uh, technological advances like mobile or personal computing. It's a, it's a thriving ecosystem. There'll be much be, very big winners. There'll be medium winners. There'll be small winners. And there'll be a bunch of people that try that will not work out. But that's, that's a classical cycle of innovation. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Um, one question I wanted to ask you. So you have such a wealth of experience building AI products. If you were to give advice to, to somebody who was just building or wanted to build AI products, uh, somebody who is maybe in the beginning of their career as a product manager, what advice would you give them? Yeah, I think it's, at the end of the day, the technical part is very fascinating, but as you can see, there was an explosion of technical advances. I think the part that requires a lot of thinking is the classical product management business acumen of it. Like, let's define the use cases on some kind of axis. I mean, I made my humble suggestions of fluency versus accuracy versus high stakes. There might be others. And basically finding the sweet spot of what, what, is the, what is the right combination of fluency and accuracy that delivers most value so you could get start and go from there. And that's very non-trivial approach. And then obviously a ton of detailed questions. How do you measure it? How do you define to measure it? What do you measure to make sure that users or, or enterprise customers or both are happy and actually get the value? So I would say it comes back to this classical question of like, what's the use case? How well it's defined? How it's measured? And, go, and, how, and how existing technology uh, can deliver that and what's needed if technology is not there yet. Amazing. Thank you. That's, that's great advice. Um, so as we wrap up, uh, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much. I feel like I've learned so much in such a short amount of time. Uh, as we wrap up, maybe, you know, I'd love to, to hear from you, like, what are some things that you're excited about that are coming up next that, that we should expect watch out for? Yeah, so I will probably be publishing the next uh, article in my series, which will probably be double-clicking on this customer-facing interactions. I believe currently not a lot of attention on that, and again, for good reasons. Obviously, a story of OpenAI and Microsoft and Google, it's very uh, newsworthy. Uh, as I said, I believe that will be a very fascinating topic, like what we had with Amazon Alexa and Google Assistant, and it will be top of mind for press. I think there is a lot of use cases that are being overlooked on how this technology is much better in the short term to generate better sales quotes, generate better real estate descriptions of, you know, house listings, generating uh, documents, generating email drafts, generating presentations. And that's where I want to focus because there was obviously a lot of details and a lot of nuances how to do it. So I'm excited about that topic, but I'm generally, generally excited about Generative AI, large language models, and their impact uh, on 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 our society. I might I might be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. That adoption of in search will be faster than I think, and people will love it. That means you know we will have much better experience uh, 
sooner. But uh, you know, there are limitations and there are things that needs to be done to uh, that are different for different use cases. Thank you, Barack. This is this is so uh, such a great conversation, and I can't wait to see your upcoming articles. Where should people go to to follow you and to learn from you? Yeah, probably, uh, probably I will probably also create a Substack page, but probably LinkedIn Substack page, and maybe also on the on the uh, blog of Scale Venture Partners. One of those. Amazing. Thank you so much. I've I've really enjoyed this conversation today and it's been an honor to have you. Thank you, Barack. Of course. Thanks so much again. Thanks for having me. It was an exciting conversation. Okay. Take care. Bye.